Some coffee and donuts. All right, everybody should have a handout. And you will need your Bible and probably a pen and your thinking cap. All right, let me go ahead and pray for us. And we'll get started. Father, we pause before our time together this morning because we recognize uh, that we need you. And so we ask that uh, you would minister to us this morning as we consider a difficult topic uh, co concerning uh, your existence, your character and nature, and the presence of evil in this world. And so we ask that you would help us in this time as we uh, think about this, as we work through uh, different passages of Scripture pray that you would help us, that you would disciple us by your word. We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, again, you should have your uh, sheet there. So there is a uh, question written at the top of your sheet there that is one you have asked about before and you've been asked about before. And that is, if God is both all-powerful and good, why is there evil in the world? And that's a very important question, isn't it? That's not just a question for people in ivory towers. That's one that when you are trying to share the gospel with um, your uh, crazy uncle at uh, Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, you all have crazy uncles? Uh, crazy family members in general, right? Not necessarily uncles. Don't need me to throw uncles under the bus. And you try to share the gospel. You try and talk about the Lord. And this is a question that very often comes up. And sometimes it's asked in earnest. Sometimes it's asked because they think it's a gotcha question. But nevertheless, it uh, drives to the heart of something that's important for us to consider. And it's something that's important uh, enough that the Bible considers extensively. So when you're asked this question, don't think that this is the kryptonite question for the Christian. The Bible talks about this a lot. But let's, uh, let's uh, look at it a little bit. And again, the, the nature of the question has to do with, and I've, I've written it as an if question, we're Christians, and so we might say, since God is both all-powerful and good, how can this be? How can it be that evil exists in the world? We're talking about God, we're talking about His presence, and so uh, we're going to assume God's goodness, all right, that's a key aspect of uh, the nature of God, what He is like, is His goodness. And so we say, well, yes, God is good. And we say He is 
all-powerful. God is good and all-powerful, and we're comfortable with that, and we like that, and that's a, a helpful um, two aspects of God that we might uh, think of, or two uh, aspects of His character and nature. But when we think about the existence of these two things and the truth of them, and then we say, well, but there's evil in the world. And so the skeptic will ask, since there is evil in the world, either God is not good, otherwise he wouldn't allow this evil, uh, and since there is evil, he must be permitting it, he must be good with it, or perhaps he's too weak to stamp it out. That's what the skeptic would say, that we're presented with the idea of God either being good or all-powerful, but certainly he can't be both if there is evil in the world. He cannot both be good and all-powerful if there is evil in the world. And so uh, that, that is presented as if it's like uh, the, the conundrum that's going to implode the Christian faith. And it is uh, a difficult question, isn't it? Because we can think about the existence of God, we can think about what God is like, and, and if you just think philosophically or, or along certain trains of thought, you can kind of um, reason peaceably about God until evil happens. Until you've had perhaps something evil happen to you or to someone near you. And very often, for the skeptic who's asking this question, they're not really looking to have it answered. They're, they're upset because something evil has happened to them or something evil has happened to someone near them, and, uh, and they're mad at God. And so they want to present an argument that they think will discount God, which is ironic because how can you be mad at someone who doesn't exist, first of all? But that's not really the, the conversation we are having right now, the consideration that we uh, want to look at. But this is uh, the nature of what we're looking at today. And so we're talking about the mystery of God's providence and how it relates to sin in the world. Many, many will have a dualistic kind of view that um, you have God who stands for good and you have the devil who stands for evil, and the existence of evil in the world is kind of like the, the lines moving, the trenches moving in World War I. They kind of move back and forth just a little bit, and that's because, because the devil is on the advance over here, and, and God's got to shore up his defenses, and this sort of dualistic idea as if as if Satan could push against God in some kind of meaningful fashion and move the, the lines. We do need to think about how to answer this question, and so that's our goal today. Okay, We're looking at the Second London Confession, and we are in chapter 5 and paragraph 4, and I will read it to us in its entirety, and then we're going to work through uh, what we find written here. 
the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. And that, not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully bounds and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceed only from the creatures and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Now, you see what is intended here in the, in the confession is an attempt to say, we recognize this problem. We recognize this problem and that it is a difficult concept to work through. And so what we are asserting, so say the framers of this confession, what we are asserting is that God is indeed all-powerful over all of these things that happen. That He is over them, that He purposes them in some way, that they are a part of His decree, that they are a part of His providence. And yet, we recognize the difficulty that that might have over here, that there's one way to understand the words that I just said that would make God not good. But we are insisting, no, in fact, this happens in such a way that God remains perfectly good. The sin and the sinfulness of those actions flow from the creatures and cannot be attributed to God. Now, whether that statement has been proven here or upheld here uh, or argued sufficiently, we're going to look at today. But that's the nature of what they're saying. When we talk about God's sovereignty, it will raise the question for people, uh, doesn't that make God the author of sin? And in fact, uh, I've had people say this to me, that, uh, Brennan, the way you talk about God's sovereignty makes God the author of sin, and therefore they're able to discount the things that I've said or we've taught about God's sovereignty, about His decree, and about providence, because they're drawing the, natural, the conclusion that they think is natural and necessary that if you're going to say God is sovereign over all things, absolutely sovereign over all things, then that necessarily means you are saying God is the author of sin, which, of course, is a deplorable thing to believe, right? So what we're going to do today is try and look through how the Bible thinks about these topics. And I want to look at the very first line that you have listed there on the confession. And you'll notice there's a reference there to the power of God. 
you'll notice there's a reference there, a recognition of the infinite goodness of God. And there's another element present. What is it? Wisdom. And wisdom is what helps us understand how this question is to be answered. When COVID first happened and it first hit the news and it was a big deal and we weren't sure if it was going to, you know, the air was going to kill half the population of the world or what we didn't know, right? Um, I actually uh, preached on the book of Job. I, I paused what I was doing in Romans, which to get me to pause from Romans took some real doing, okay? But um, decided to preach on the book of Job because Job deals with this issue as well. If you remember what Job's friends were saying to Job, of course we remember what happened to Job and, and, uh, and he had family members die and he had his, his wealth destroyed and he had um, eventually illness and sickness in his own body and, and so he's got these, these friends who are counselors who are sitting there talking to him and if you remember, had Job done anything to cause, to bring about, had Job somehow stepped in it that he did something wrong that caused all these things to happen? No. He was an upright man. It actually uh, is amazing how Job is presented in that book in his righteousness. And yet these things happen to him and his friends come along and what do his friends say to him? You have to have done something. You're guilty somehow. I mean, you look like an you know, upstanding guy. Everybody thinks highly of you, but surely, surely you've, uh, you've mistreated the poor. Surely you've lied to God. Surely you've done these evil things. Surely you have uh, grown proud or whatever. They, they suggest all manner of sins that Job must have entered into to bring about such retribution. Why would God treat him like this? Well, the answer from the book of Job is that God governs the world not on a tit-for-tat basis, but from his wisdom. He's governing the world based upon his wisdom, and if you remember how the book of Job finishes, the last number of chapters, go, uh, uh, God has, you know, he's, he's kind of buttonholed Job, and he's saying, where were you when I formed this? Do you know how this system works? Do you know where this animal gives birth? Do you know uh, these kind of questions? Did, were you the one who, who, who created the rain? Were you the one who did all this stuff? And Job's like, uh, I, I got nothing. I don't know any of that, right? I, I don't know any of that. Okay, so the, the implication is, Job, you and your friends think that you're smart enough to have, to have figured this whole thing out when you don't even know how the world works, much less the actions of God in governing the world. And Job says, I'm just going to cover my mouth and um, listen to God, right? Because God governs by wisdom. And so when we think about the aspect of God's goodness and power in relation to the existence of sin in the world, we must remember what is pointed out for us here, the unsearchable wisdom of God right between those two elements, okay? So when we consider this difficult question, question number one there, when we look at the question, if God is both all-powerful and good, why is there evil in the world? 
What foundational truths must we consider at, at the outset of this discussion? Do what? So we're limited, right? We've got, you know, some understanding, and it's about that big, perhaps, right? So our own limitation. What are some ways this conversation could really go south and end up um, into all manner of uh, heresy and, and problems? At the outset of the discussion, where must we begin? We've got to start with who God is. And we've got to remember who God is, what He is like. And we've said before, and we'll say again many times, that often we run into difficulty when we are developing our theology, when we're thinking our thoughts about God, we run into problems when we begin with us. Or when we begin with this world. That's what Job's friends were doing. They were saying, Job, we see you having difficulty. And then they reason from there up toward God, right? We, we so often do this, and we will run into difficulty in this uh, question if we start with the existence of evil in the world and reason from there, or we, if we start with what we know to be the case right here and reason from there. Instead, we must start with who God is as presented in Scripture. We must remember what God is like. And, and I would refer you, if you've got your uh, copy of the confession there, um, you go to uh, chapter 2 and paragraph 1. We're not going to reinvent the wheel here. We've covered this very thoroughly in that section about who God is and what He's like. Does anybody not have a copy of the confession? I've still got a few over here that, that we could give away. Does anyone need one? Okay. We'll take a small deposit so that when you return it. We... What's that? All right. Chapter 2, paragraph 1. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So we must keep that in mind, that the, when we come to this question, we must remember we have asked and answered other questions leading up to it. And let's not forget those answers. Let's not forget who God is in His character and in His nature. That God's power and wisdom and infinite goodness 
form the foundation for our discussion. So we start with God. Question number two. What things, given what we just read, given what we've already studied, by the way, you can find all these Sunday school classes um, online. You, you can listen to them. And uh, so if there's a, if there's a question that's, that, that you missed or perhaps that a later topic raises questions about this thing back here that we've covered, you can go back and listen to those and find those uh, online at the website. What things are outside God's control? No things, right? <laughs> Nothing is outside of God's control, right? Some verses we want to look at here. Proverbs 16, verse 33. And we could really be all over the place uh, in looking at these verses but even, I think Stephen referred to this, the lot cast in the lap, right? It's every decision is from the Lord. So Stephen with his die that he was dropping and throwing and losing and whatnot was proving the point that even the way that rolled, did a four come up? Did a five come up? Did it bounce over here and he lost it? Or all of that, it's, it's cast in the lap. You know everything that's going on and the, and the physics people can think about the physics and, the, and how it all plays and the, all this kind of stuff. And it's every decision is from the Lord. The bouncing of a little piece of whatever that is, a little cube, even that is from the Lord. Or we look at Lamentations 3, 37. Jeremiah Lamentations. Who has spoken... And it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Right? Now that has a lot of different applications, but the idea there is we make our plans, we put together how things are going to happen, and sometimes it works out just like we said. Nevertheless, whatever works out is what the Lord has commanded. All right? What is outside of God's control? Nothing. Nothing is outside of God's control. The bouncing of a cube on the table or the floor. One of the best examples is Joseph. You God. Absolutely. That's right. You see God in control even in the wicked hearts of wicked men. Bent on wicked purposes. And you see God in control there. Or uh, could I have someone look up Psalm 115.3? He does whatever he pleases. He is free. He is free and nothing bounds him, binds him. Nothing uh, sets the boundaries of what he can do. He is free. He does whatever he pleases. And finally, Proverbs 19, 21. So just uh, like what, what we read um, earlier, that uh, uh, like, like in Lamentations 3.37, God's purposes are what is accomplished. Okay, God's purposes are what is accomplished. We, we make plans. Uh, we, we hope to do this. We hope to do that. 
what ends up happening is according to the plan of God, which we saw when we discussed earlier in the, uh, in the confession and we looked at chapter 3 and verse 1, we said this, uh, chapter 3 and paragraph 1 here, said the same thing, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither uh, God is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. There is nothing, nothing, nothing outside of God's control. Well, so you ask the question, uh, number three there, then to whom do evil spirits submit? Isn't their very nature not to submit to God? That's how they ended up in the position they're in? Rebellion against God? Wouldn't we say that they uh, won't submit, that they don't submit, and, um, and those sorts of things? But uh, I'm going to have people look at different, um, for the sake of time. Could I have someone from the front row look up 1 Samuel 16, 14? Someone from the second row, um, let's see, look up uh, Judges 9, 23. Someone from the third row, look up 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23. And someone from the back row, look up 2 Chronicles 18, 18 through 22, please. What's that? They have to submit to God, Simi says. Let's see if Scripture agrees. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, 14. Someone from the front. All right, so here's a very difficult uh, topic. And by the way, it says it about four or five times about Saul. The same kind of language used about Saul. Now, whatever it ultimately means, it means that there is a harmful spirit, there is a painful spirit, there is an evil spirit tasked by God to torment Saul. However we understand that, whatever ultimately it means, you've got to recognize that that's what Scripture says. And it'll say it again and again regarding Saul. And Saul is a unique character. He's in a, he's in a particular spot. But we see uh, this language here. We see that there is a harmful spirit that is under the control of God himself. We must not think in terms of uh, some sort of dualism where there is a war going on. And yeah, God's going to win the war, but it's kind of back and forth, back and forth. And no, that actually here we have a harmful spirit doing the very bidding of God himself, which is what we saw in Job as well. Uh, second row, did we do Judges 9.23? Is that what we did? Again, whatever, whatever that ultimately means, the logic of Scripture is that that evil spirit was tasked by God to do something. That evil spirit was submitted to God, doing the very bidding of God. What do we do next? First Kings 
uh, 22, 19 through 23. Then back row, pay attention to this one because you're, you're gonna, we're going to start a fight, okay? 1 Kings 22. All right, so actually the fight is going to be caused on the next couple of verses we're going to read, not that one. Because uh, basically uh, Second Chronicles says the same thing, okay? But here you have this, this discussion. You have a lying spirit tasked by the Lord to go for the purpose of deceiving this person for particular reasons in a particular context that makes sense when you read the broader thing. But here, the, the point I want us to see is that by the logic of Scripture, even evil spirits have to obey God. They submit to him. All right, back table, let's, uh, I'm going to have you look, look up uh, instead 2 Samuel 24, 1, and then someone on the pew is going to look up 1 Chronicles 21, 1. Second Samuel 24, 1. Go for it when you got it. All right, First Chronicles 21, and verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Who incited David, mother dear? Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Satan did. Uh, back row, what do you think of that? Who incited Israel? Or who, who, who incited uh, David to number Israel? The Lord did. All right, so here you've got two different passages of Scripture describing the same exact event, and one of them says that the Lord incited David to do this thing. The other one says Satan incited David to do this thing. We've got one of two conclusions we can draw. One is that one of those passages or the other is wrong. No, Simi won't let us do that, and she's right. The other is that they're not saying different things. That there is a way to understand both happening. That Satan was doing the bidding of God. Satan was doing it for his own purposes. He was after evil. He was trying to trip David up. He was trying to bring judgment. He was trying to do evil things. And God, who was sovereign over all, wanted the same thing to be done for his own good purposes. Okay? And so we see in question three there that even evil spirits submit to God. So then that raises the question that we're going to continue answering in our day today. Is it, isn't it best just to say that God merely allows evil to happen? You see, vocabulary is a difficult thing. You've got to think about how to word things and what is being implied by the words that we use. We don't want to say, and we are right not to say, God causes evil. 
That is not the right verb. We are putting evil uh, in God's hands as if God is, God is doing evil. Does God do evil? May it never be. So we shy away from that. We go over here and we say, well, but evil does happen. And since God is sovereign, he must merely permit it. He allows it. To, he takes his hands off and just allows it to happen. Is that a sufficient way to describe what we've read so far and what we're going to read? No, that's two hands off. That's, that's passive. That's, that's kind of a dualistic concept, right? That, 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 that God just, um, you know, he, he, just, uh, he, he just allowed it, right? That's not quite the right vocabulary word either. And so we struggle to find the right vocabulary word. And so um, we, we try to think about this, that God doesn't simply allow or permit evil things to happen. Not simply. He bounds them. He orders them. He governs them. When Satan went to entice David to number the people of Israel, God wanted David to do the same thing. Satan was doing it for his awful evil purposes, but God wasn't merely saying, well, you know, that's a good idea, and I guess I can work something out um, as a consequence of what has done, and I guess I can kind of uh, bring things back around to where they ought to be. No, God is not passive in this. And so we struggle to find the right vocabulary, okay? Question number five, related to that, what purpose can bad things and evil possibly have? Evil is bad, Therefore, it would be better if it were gone, right? No? Not always, right? And so the, the passage that we looked at here, uh, Genesis 50, 20, you probably don't have, you can turn there, but it's kind of the direction we're going in our, uh, in our Genesis. It's the direction Genesis goes. I was going to say it's the direction I'm going in the, my preaching of Genesis, but if I didn't do so, I would be, being dishonest with Scripture, <laughs> because that's the direction Genesis goes. Looking at the life of Joseph and, and seeing that he is sold into slavery by his brothers bent on doing evil, wanting to take him out, wanting to get him gone, his brothers who initially thought, hey, let's kill him, and then they say, well, let's don't kill him, let's just sell him and make some money and he'll be gone, and that way his blood's not on our hands, but we've got a little money, but he's out of the picture, which is the point. He gets all the evil things that happened to Joseph. At the end of his life, what does he say in 5022, his brothers? You meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. I always ask the question, who meant it? Because it's exactly parallel in the Hebrew. You meant it. Verb is meant, intended. You meant it for evil, and God, what's the verb? Meant. It's exactly the same. God meant it for good. So the question that I asked to answer our question today is, who meant it? Both. Yes. Right? Therein lies the mystery. Or we could go to uh, Psalm 76, 10. So we have, we have a, um, uh, we're proceeding through, uh, reasoning through this in a particular fashion. And 
what we're doing is saying, uh, we're asking our question about the existence of God and the existence of evil. Does the, does the presence and the existence of evil call into question one or both of these aspects of God or perhaps rule out God as a possibility? That's what we're, we're, we're asking and, and trying to answer that question. The first thing we're saying is that the Bible holds that God is good and God is all-powerful and evil exists. And God even purposes some things from that evil. He meant it. Genesis 50, 20. I've not answered yet how that can all work together. And it's possible that we won't be able to do that in an adequate fashion. But, but what we want to emphasize is what does Scripture teach on the topic? Does, now, it may be difficult for us to grasp. Possibly we won't want to hear what it says. Maybe it's not comfortable. But we must recognize, first of all, what Scripture teaches on the topic and then grapple with that. And what, we're, uh, what I'm trying to say is that Scripture teaches that God in His wisdom means evil for good purposes. Somehow, but that's what Scripture teaches. And so here we have in uh, Psalm 76 and, and verse 10, uh, if you, if you uh, read through this, it seems like the wrath of man here means the wrath of God directed towards man. Um, if you read the, the rest of the context here, it, it seems like it's talking about even the, the judgment of God upon man. What, could, what good could possibly come from judgment of, of God upon a man? Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. There's something that comes from that, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Something comes from that even, even in God's punishment of evil. There's something from that that is honoring to God, and we don't have to reach too far to think what that would be. It's to the praise of His glorious justice that we see even that, right? So good comes in this context where you've got sinful men who are going to be judged that, that even in the, the outworking of all of that, you've got God being glorified uh, because His glorious justice is being put on display. Now, before we move on to uh, looking at further questions, look at number six there. What good can possibly come from pondering this difficult problem of evil? What good can possibly come from? I mean, isn't this just something that... that um, People who like to write books that nobody reads, um, like to ponder and debate with one another. Isn't this just a, uh, a white uh, ivory tower um, topic for, for eggheads to discuss? What good can possibly come? I mean, really, aren't we going to get ourselves into trouble? Aren't we going to get ourselves into difficulties and we're going to reduce God to some kind of equation or we're going to... What, what good can possibly come from discussing and thinking about this uh, difficult question? While you're turning to Romans chapter 11, I want you to think about one good thing that can come from it, which is your crazy uncle at the Thanksgiving table. Yeah. 
Yeah. Why, why did this happen to that person? Why did this happen to me? Like, our babies are asking. Yeah. This is, this is real for every day. Yeah. It's, it's hard, but it's real for every day. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very, very practical. When I was doing youth, um, we, would, we would do a thing where uh, I w- we would, and, and Stephen still does it, which I, I really appreciate. When you just open it up, we call it Stump the Chump. I don't know whether it's a good name or not. That's what we called it. And I would just let the students start asking questions. And they would start off relatively simple, and sometimes it would be about relationships or this or that or whatever. But if you let it go on long enough, it comes to this question. The question doesn't pop into someone's mind when they get their second PhD and are writing their 18th book that no one reads. The question pops into your child's mind as soon as they can think. It's an important question for all of us to ask and, and be able to answer and think biblically on this topic and not avoid. Look at uh, Romans chapter 11. All roads read, lead to Romans. So here we have a very difficult discussion, 9, 10, and 11, which is talking about um, salvation and God's sovereignty in that, and particularly how it relates to Jews, and here how it relates to the nation of Israel and the church, and those sorts of difficult questions. And we see in verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Now there's a lot in there to to discuss, but do you see the interplay between disobedience and obedience and the description here that God is sovereign over those things and He does it for a purpose? Verse 30, you you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy. Why? Why? Because of their disobedience. Boy, that's a, just a, a lucky thing that it worked out that way. You know, boy, there's, everything's, everything's coming up for you, right? No, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. God is using and working those big concepts together, including obedience and disobedience for His good purposes. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God is working those things together for the purpose of bringing mercy. And then we see verse 33 and verse 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? God works together even those concepts. So God is at work. So what good can come from it? Well, we we see God's glory in accomplishing His good purposes even in evil things that happen. We need to pick up the pace. Are we saying that God is responsible for sin rather than man? Absolutely not. Habakkuk 1.13 says that you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, speaking of God. You're so pure that like, that God is, God's holiness keeps him at an utter distance. So no, he's not the cause of that. He's not responsible for sin. 1 John 2.16, right? The things uh, that are of the world, desires of the flesh, desires of the, the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are not from God. They're from the world. They find their root 
they, 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 they're, they're from the world, right? So no, we're not blaming God. We're not saying God is responsible for sin. Scripture doesn't do that. And again, as a reminder, in question eight there, we must keep in mind God's character and nature as we think through this process. What does the Bible say about this, this, this question of the problem of evil? We must think about who God is as asserted everywhere in Scripture as we think through that question. And so I bring it back around just to make sure we have 10 uh, questions for our day. But no, because I thought it would be important for us to be reminded to keep in mind always what God is like. How does Scripture speak of God? Does someone have Psalm 50 and verse 21? I've been so busy talking, I didn't turn there. Psalm 50 and verse 21, if I get there first, I'm going to read it. God says, you, you, you started thinking I was like you. Where does the charge lie? We need to keep in mind what God is like, okay? He does not approve of sin, but he governs and he orders it for his good and glorious purposes. Now, we talked, I think Stephen talked last week uh, about question nine there. How does the consider the cross help us understand our question? And you've got written down there Acts 2.23 and Acts 4.27 and 28, in which it is discussed that evil men purposed to put Jesus to death. Whew, I thought it was too late. Purposed to put Jesus to death because they hated him and they wanted him gone. And all the while, that was happening exactly according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. God was accomplishing His purposes. And what was His purpose in the greatest evil event that ever happened? That we get to be saved. He was accomplishing the greatest good by means of the greatest evil. But we talked about that last week, so let's move on to Isaiah chapter 10. Question 10, how does God's uh, how do God's intentions and the evil intentions of evil men relate to one another? And particularly we see this in Isaiah chapter 10. This, this passage needs to stick in our minds. We've already got Genesis 50, 20. That one is sticking in our minds. It ought to. Acts 2, 23 and 4, 27, 28 regarding the cross. That is key and central that, that our very salvation depends upon God superintending in some way evil to bring about exactly his good purposes. If, if we deny that, if we lose that, we lose salvation. And how it is that you and I get to be forgiven of our sins and have uh, the righteousness of Christ applied to us. It is not Herod saying, I was reading in scripture today and I just was seeing that God wanted the Messiah to be suffered and have his hands pierced and, 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 and all these things. And so that's what we're going to do to accomplish God's good purposes. No, Herod and Pilate and everybody else involved, just kill him. Get him out of the way already. Let's go on with our lives. Meanwhile, God and his sovereignty is accomplishing your salvation. We must not lose that. We go to Isaiah chapter 10, and we think about this uh, situation here where you've got, uh, you've got uh, Judah, um, uh, re represented by Jeru uh, Jerusalem, which is the capital city there, uh, Mount Zion, right? And so uh, they've been disobedient, and they are deserving of God's judgment. They are um, in need of discipline from God. Is discipline from God a good thing? 
Absolutely. When we discipline our child, it's for good purposes, right? The child may not always understand that. Hopefully when they get older, they will understand that. But nevertheless, our discipline of our child and God's discipline of his children is for good purposes. And yet, we turn to verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 10. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Right, so here you've got Assyria and the king of Assyria, uh, of Assyria. They're wandering around conquering everybody, right? Just making a name for themselves. Uh, they're glorious and mighty and powerful. And so God says, Assyria is the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Now, is the king of Assyria saying, I was pondering in Scripture today that the righteousness of God means that the people of God need to be disciplined, and so very reluctantly I'm willing to go against this nation to be... No. He's wandering around um, taking spoil, overthrowing uh, kingdoms. Verse 6, against a godless nation I send him. I wonder who this godless nation is, right? Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him. So here's the king of Assyria out doing his thing, and God says, I'm going to send him on a particular mission. Against the people of my wrath I, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Severe discipline. Severe discipline is what God is intending by the rod of his fury, which is Assyria. But he, Assyria, king of Assyria, he does not so intend. That's, that's what I mean. The king of Assyria wasn't doing his devotions in Deuteronomy 28 and came to the conclusion that the nation of Israel needed to be disciplined. And he, you know, he was reluctantly willing to go and be, <clears throat> be God's hand in that. No, he does not so intend. He's not trying to discipline God's people for God. His, his heart does not so think. It is in his heart to destroy, to cut off nations, not a few. What's he after? Plunder, glory, a greater expanded kingdom, might. Right? He wants to be on top of the world, and so he's going to bowl uh, everybody else over to make that happen. That's what's in his heart, not being the uh, the, the rod in God's hand for his good purposes. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? I've, I've, I've run over all of these guys. This other corner of the world is going to be just like them. I beat those guys. I destroyed them. I took everything they had. They're nothing now. I'm going to turn the corner and do that right over here too. And it's going to be the same end. No one can stand in front of me. As my hand has reached to the kingdom of idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, the gods of these other people and their carved images and all that, they were greater and I defeated them. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? I'm, I'm, I'm going to destroy them and wipe them out like I've done so many others. That's what's in his heart. Is that good or is that evil? Evil. Bald-faced evil that Assyria is trying to do. And yet, this same Assyria, with all the evil intentions, with all the evil heart, 
with all the greed and the, and the pride and the arrogance and the self-glorification and all of that, that is the rod of God's fury. Like a, like, a, like a spanking spoon in the hand of God. We use spanking spoons. So my kids all know what that is. Yeah, Brennan's got a look on his face. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, so when, when, when the king of Assyria comes down, does all he's going to do to Mount Zion and Jerusalem, when the Lord has finished his work, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So, was the king of Assyria doing good? He was doing evil. Is he going to face punishment for that? Absolutely. He himself was utterly disobedient to God. Rooted in his pride and, 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 and self-glorification and all of that, his motivation was entirely evil. And God says, when the time is done, and when Assyria has marched through and, and destroyed Jerusalem, done all that he's going to do with the pillaging and all that, when he has done all of that, I will turn and I will discipline that disobedient braggart. Because he himself, the king of Assyria, seeking evil, doing evil things for evil purposes, and I will judge him for it, says God. And yet God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, what did he mean by those same things? Discipline for his people. Discipline for Israel. His good purposes. What God intended, was it good? Yeah. Now, did it feel good to Jerusalem? A spanking spoon doesn't feel good to the child that is having it used upon them either. But it's for their good. God was accomplishing his good purposes. So, so in, our, in our, our closing thoughts here, we may not have, I certain, we haven't put to rest all the questions that, that arise because of this. But what, what we intend to lay before you, what, what has been my goal to lay before you this morning, is the seriousness of the question and how the Bible talks about it. The Bible recognizes that question and how the Bible answers that question, though its answer may not be palatable to us. That last piece is a secondary question. And that's more of a matter of my taste than about the truth of what Scripture teaches on the topic. I may not like it initially. I may stumble against it, but what... What, what I cannot deny is that we have an explicit and a drawn-out presentation here in Isaiah chapter 10, that it is true. When I think about the life of Joseph and all that happens to him and how it concludes, I may struggle to work those things together. We're going to struggle with that, but what I must recognize is the language of 50-20 drawing it to a conclusion. You meant it, and you meant it for evil. God meant it. He meant it for good. Can God do that? Is God able to do that? Well, according to the logic of Scripture, absolutely, because He is all-powerful, and He is good, and He is wise. 
When I think about the cross itself, and I think about what went into Jesus being falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, he's being lied against again and again. They've gone against the law again and again in putting him to death. He's an innocent man and he dies. At the hands of evil, wicked men. No doubt about it. And the Bible can talk about those exact events and say that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God for the purpose of accomplishing our salvation. We must learn to think the way the Bible thinks. We must learn to submit our own thinking uh, to the way Scripture talks about this. And so the, the question is a difficult one. The question is a very real one. It'll be asked by uh, your three-year-old, and it'll be asked by the guys with the PhDs and your crazy uncle. I don't have any crazy uncles, by the way. My uncle's pretty cool. Yeah. It's a hard question. The Bible has answers for it. The challenge for us as Christians is to discern what the Bible's answer to these questions is and to come to see that that answer reflects who our God is, what He is like. And that gives me great comfort when evil happens in the world. Even horrific, unimaginable, indescribable evil. God is at work. And I can take comfort. I can take comfort because God is sovereign over all things. And He is good. And though I can't comprehend how those things work together the vast majority of the time, He is wise. And I take comfort from that. Let's pray. Father, this question is big and difficult for us. It not, not just difficult to, to think through how can it be. We know that, uh, that, that you are incomprehensible ultimately to us. We, we can't wrap our minds entirely around you. If we could, that would make you very small. And so it's not just the difficulty of, of how does the mechanism work for us and for me the question more often comes down to whether I like the answer Scripture gives or not. Whether I'm willing to accept what I see on the page. And that's a, that's a work that needs to be done by your Spirit in our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that work. We pray that you, by your Word, would disciple us, that we would grow in our in our understanding of you, in our knowledge of you, our love for you, and our walk with you. May even this topic that we've discussed today be useful in your hands for that purpose. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.